people in my way. Um, and just a lot of traffic and, and the, the stores are crazy busy. Um, and if, I was thinking about just being honest about this whole season of gift giving. Um, does anybody else have someone in their life that they just, you have to get a gift for them because that's what we do. And that's not a bad thing. I understand this. But like, they already have everything. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Like one of the, one of the whenever you start typing into Google like gifts for, it's usually the first thing that pops up is gifts for someone who has everything. And I don't know if, if you ever find yourself scrolling through Amazon, just praying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You're like five minutes in, you're just like, I know. Like it's never ending scroll and you're just praying that one, one of these things is going to pop up and it's going to be the thing that this person that you need to buy something for, um, it'll, it'll be new, you've never seen it before. Because a lot of people have, a, you know, we have disposable incomes, and so we, we uh, will buy things ourselves, needs and wants, and we don't wait for Christmas because we need it now. And so um, maybe you have somebody in your life that this Christmas season, you've asked them, you know, hey, what can I get you for Christmas? And then they will give you this vague answer which is like, oh, don't worry about me. You know, you don't have to get me anything. And I just think to myself, how can you be so selfish? <laughs> like, why would you seriously, like, I have to get you something. Will you just, will you get a hobby or something? Do something with your life. You know, you know what I mean? Like, you need something because why? Because you got to get this person a gift and they already have everything. And so we struggle with this re reality that like, what do you get? Give somebody who has everything. And so that's why I titled the message this week because we're talking about the wise men. And I really think that that must have been what they were Googling when they were packing to go on this trip to see this newborn king of the Jews. Has anyone else ever wondered about these gifts that these guys give? Like seriously, gold, frankincense, and what? <laughs> we all know it. We, don't, we may not know any, any other scripture, but we know myrrh. I know gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? And that's exactly what you would get for a one-year-old on their birthday party, wouldn't you? You'd be like, should I get them? You know, myrrh. Myrrh would be, what is myrrh? I, I don't know, but I think they need it. You know, I, I think they could use some, a good, healthy amount of myrrh for, for, for their first year of, of being born. Let, this is a really odd story. It's only found in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read it today. Um, but what I, what I know is this, even though it may be an odd story and it's only found in one of the Gospels, if it's in the Word of God, it's in the Word of God for a purpose. It's in there for a reason. Like God is always wanting to uh, speak to us and reveal something about himself or about ourselves that, um, it, it, that if it's in the Word of God, it's in there for a reason. And so I'd love if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 and let's see what it is that, that God is wanting to, uh, to speak to us today. Matthew 2, if you'd stand with me to honor the reading of God's word, I would really appreciate that. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the, the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. 
For this is what the prophet has written. And they open up the scroll, and this is what it says. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and they saw the star they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with some odd gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. Everything in your word is um, a part of your story to tell us more about our story. And Lord, we thank you that you communicate to us in many different ways. And I believe that even in this odd story, you have something to communicate about how to worship you and what it looks like to be a follower of you, Jesus. So we thank you for it. We ask that you speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You be seated. Thanks. So I've been reading through the, the Christmas accounts because that's what pastors do uh, around, around Christmas. We're like, okay, I got to I preach about Christmas, and so I'm reading through all of these accounts. And last week, we, we talked about how one of, the, one of the, the streams that I was seeing through all of these different Christmas accounts is that all the major players first reacted with fear. Angels would show up, they'd freak out. Angel would show up, they'd freak out. There was fear was, was, was a huge thing that, uh, that was their first and initial response to uh, being introduced to this whole idea of being a part of this original Christmas. Um, as I've been reading through it even more, I, I've realized that most of them seem to react in some form of worship or, or song, actually. If you read through Luke chapter 1, you can do this maybe later on, um, it reads like a musical. Um, it's not like kind of the normal, like, okay, this is the facts, this is the story. If you read through Luke chapter 1, you'll see it. It's like, okay, here's the story of Zechariah. Zechariah, the angel comes, tells him about this, and all of a sudden Zechariah starts singing. It's like, we're doing this. This is what's going on. It's a guy. He starts singing. He just starts, he has this song impromptu, starts worship. It's a praise and worship song that he just made up on the spot, and uh, we have this written down for our posterity. And then, and then uh, we, we, Keep on going in Luke chapter 1, and Mary, we hear, the, you know, Mary, the angel comes and tells us what's going on, and all of a sudden she just starts singing. Um, it, it literally, it reads much like, like a musical, and it's this realization that the main players in the first Christmas react in some form of worship, or singing, or songs, or whatever that looks like. And so it's important for us to realize that these wise men aren't really any different we see the whole reason why they were following this star. It wasn't because necessarily they were just like, oh yeah, that would be really cool. That looks like a cool star and a celestial thing. We should follow it because we got time on our hands and let's, let's just do this thing. We see their whole purpose in verse 2. It says this, when we saw his star when it rose, 
and have come to what? To worship him. The whole purpose that they came, the whole reason that they showed up was to worship this newborn king, this king of the Jews, this, this king of kings. So they weren't coming to a baby shower, they were uninvited. Uh, they weren't coming to a one-year-old's birthday party with some really weird gifts. Um, they, they, they came to worship this king of the Jews. And so they gave him gifts. They gave him gold, they gave him frankincense, they gave him myrrh. But don't, please don't miss this. It was their worship that was the real gift that they brought. That was the whole purpose why they came. That was the whole reason why they showed up. It's the whole reason why they took this trek was to worship him. So before we get into this, I just want to, um, I want to just explain a few things to you about what, what we know about these wise men. The truth is, not much, if anything. And after reading this only biblical account in Matthew chapter 2, you may have realized that, that you thought you knew more about them than is actually in the Bible. Because if you've grown up in church, we even sing things like, we three kings of Orientar. We, we, I don't know why we have to sing it weird like that, but we always did. <laughs> Bearing gifts we traverse afar. You know, it was just kind of this weird, like, uh, that was the song. So much of that song is not true biblically. It, it's kind of made up by tradition. Um, and so I want to kind of, um, spoiler alert, wreck your nativity set for a moment. Like, you're going to be like, what in the world? Pastor Justin, you're ruining Christmas for me. No, just a bit of it, just a small portion. Um, so some traditions say that there were three wise men. Now, I just read the account, the biblical account, to you, with you. Um, there's nothing in here, nothing in Scripture that numbers them. Now, we do know they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but that, that doesn't mean that they were, hey, I'm the gold dude, and I'm the frankincense guy. I'm myrrh. I brought myrrh. Right, that guy. Like, you know, there's no, there, there could have been six, there could have been 15, there could have been 20 wise men. We, there's nothing that actually says that there were only three. I'm sorry if that destroys your nativity set. Um, so let's, let's keep going. By the third century, tradition named them kings. We three kings of... Now, there's nothing in Scripture that uh, will support this, apart from the fact that they were obviously rich and had a ton of free time on their hands, right? Uh, there's nothing that, that, that says that. Now, by the 6th century, 600 years after this whole thing took place, um, certain traditions gave them ethnicities. Now, if you've got, like, your, your little Fontanini set that you've gotten, you know, pieces from over the years or whatever, as long as it's not the wooden set, you'll notice that they, the three wise men have ethnicities all of a sudden. This didn't happen. Uh, this wasn't the, the, the normal thing, but you'll notice that there's a white guy, a black guy, and a Middle Eastern guy. You ever seen that? It sounds like the beginning of an inappropriate joke. Like, there's kind of like this, that, that's... That's what we see. Now, there's no actual biblical truth or in this account, anything like that. We also, some traditions in the 6th century gave them names. Now, it, you'd be a really good Christian if you knew their names. The most commonly accepted names are Balthazar, Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar. Did anybody know those names? Yes, you did? No. You, were you just stretching? Was that a stretch? No, that doesn't count. 
You can't just do that. That doesn't, that doesn't count. Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar, um, although there's no biblical evidence to support any of these, and apparently it took 600 years for us to figure out the details of this event. We all of a sudden have names and ethnicities. Um, so the reality is, is there's a lot that we don't know that we think that we know, but it's not actually in the Bible. Here's what we do know about them. They came from the east. We don't know where in the east. Some say Persia, some say Babylon, some say the Arabian Desert. All we know is that they came from the east, which is probably a, a pretty good distance away. We also know that they're called magi. We, that's what we get the, the term wise men. It's translated as wise men. But the word magi is where we get the word magic, right? So, so they were most likely like sorcerers, astrologers, because they were like focused on these celestial things, or magicians. Not like David Blaine or Copperfield, but these were like, these were like experts in, in foretelling and watching for signs and dreams and visions. This was what these, these wise men of old were known for. From the context, we can tell that they were highly, um, highly ranked officials of some sort. They had riches and power and influence, or else they would never have been able to have an audience with the king, right? They got, they got a private audience with King Herod. That wouldn't have happened unless they had some sort of notoriety that came along with them, or if they had an entire entourage of people, servants, and camels that also came along with them as well. So we know that about them. And we know that they were following a moving star or some sort of celestial being. But, but, but here's my question. Why would these, these pagans from miles away make a connection between a celestial phenomenon and the star of the king of the Jews? Like, where, where did that come from? Let me give you a possible explanation for this. Way back in Numbers chapter 22, I know it's probably been a while since you opened up and cracked open the book of Numbers. Um, it sounds daunting just opening it up. Um, Numbers chapter 22, there's this story where the king of Moab hired a sorcerer named Balaam. Now, you may not recognize Balaam, but you ever heard of Balaam's donkey, the talking donkey? You guys heard that? That's where it's found in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. That's where this story is found. So the king of Moab's getting a little jiggy because he's looking over the, the whole like kingdom of Israel. And he's like, man, these, these people are getting, they're growing. And, and he's feeling a little like, uh, I sh I'm, I'm afraid that they're getting too big. And so he hires a sorcerer named Balaam. And he's like, hey, could you put a curse on these people? Could you cast a spell over the people of Israel? So Balaam's like, all right, I'm a sorcerer for hire. So he goes and he, he tries to make his way with his donkey and tries to get up to a high spot so he can look over all of Israel so that he can just cast the spell and the curse over everybody all at one time. Well, there's a whole bunch of things that happened. If you ever, if you've never gotten into numbers, you should get into numbers 22, 23, and 24. There's a whole story of, of, of angels and the talking donkey that starts yelling at him because he's beating it too hard. And, and either way, he ne God stops him from being able to go and curse Israel. In fact, rather than cursing Israel, there's a whole portion of this scripture where he prophesies blessing over Israel and how blessed Israel is. And in fact, Balaam is the first person to prophesy about the star. Many theologians believe that Balaam is the father of the Magi. 
He kind of was the father of this movement of these wise men, these magi. Let me read for you in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. This is part of his prophecy about Israel. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So, this may possibly be where these wise men that were following the celestial star to, to find the king of the Jews first learned about this star from Balaam, the sorcerer. So, basically, let me sum all of this up for you. This is what we know. An, an un, unknow, a group of unknown number from an unknown place traveled a heck of a long way to worship a king that they had never met and whose kingdom was still yet undefined based upon a moving light in the sky. That's all we know. The rest of it has kind of been left up to, to tradition. So what we do know, what I just said to you is this, they came for the specific purpose of worship. And, and it's interesting to me, God puts everything in his word for a reason. So what does it look like to worship the king? What does it look like to worship? What can we learn from these wise men about what it means to worship Jesus? So the first thing we see is this. If you're taking notes, you've got it on the back of your, of your bulletin, is that worship involves personal sacrifice. Worship involves personal sacrifice. These wise guys, these wise men, come from the east to Jerusalem. How far did they travel? Well, we don't really know. Like I said, it could be from a few different places. and all. We don't necessarily know the exact place where they came from or where they went back to. But the, the, the best guess is it was about 900 miles this is not a, a, an afternoon jaunt or a Sunday drive on your camel. This is weeks of traveling across the desert to be able to get to Jerusalem. And the reality is, is that true worship will cost you something. If worship doesn't cost you anything, you might be a fan of it, but it's probably not worship. It does. It, true worship always costs you something. And so for some of us, we, we may be thinking like, well, yeah, I agree with that, Pastor Justin, which is why, you know, when people are like thinking that worship is all about singing songs for 30 minutes and raising their hands and doing all of this stuff, that's why I'm not into it because it's like this, that's, that's not all worship is. And I would say this to you. I completely agree with you. It, it is not just that, but it certainly isn't less than that. It certainly isn't less than that. Worship involves personal sacrifice. And these wise men travel 900 miles. They, they, they sacrifice time and money and their reputation in order to encounter and to bow down to a, uh, a one-year-old kid. I mean, think about how humiliating that must have been. Worship involves personal sacrifice, or it's probably not worship, just to be honest with you. All right, I'm stepping on your toes. Let's go. Number two. Worship seeks God's glory. Worship seeks God's glory. We see it in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, uh, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I know I'm giving you some, some background knowledge, but I feel like it's really important for us to truly understand what it is that God is trying to communicate to us through his word here. Um, when it says that Herod was disturbed, that is the understatement of this entire chapter. Herod was just straight up disturbed. Like, 
he was uh, um, a psychotic maniac. He was um, psychotically paranoid that everybody was trying to take over his kingdom. And um, he would do anything that it took that we find throughout, throughout history, throughout, throughout extra you know, biblical material of how crazy this guy was. Um, he killed his wife because he thought that she was planning and plotting against him. And then just to cover all of his bases, he went ahead and killed her brother and her mother as well, just to make sure that everything was all good. The same King Herod, a few years later, killed all three of his sons because he, saw, he thought that they were aiming for his throne as well. This same King Herod on his deathbed had a couple dozen nobility and leaders in this city killed the moment that he died. Why? Because he wanted people to cry when he died, even if they weren't mourning him. He wanted somebody to be crying when he passed. So this is the type of guy that we're talking about. And this is when it says that King Herod was disturbed, he absolutely was disturbed. And so when it says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him, it's not that surprising, is it? Why? Because if Herod's disturbed about something, everybody's going to pay for it. It's like, oh man, Herod's freaking out again. We're all going to die. He's just going to kill us all. Like, why? Because that's what Herod did. That's how he was. So all of Jerusalem being disturbed with Herod was obviously just a normal, a normal event. Now compound this fact about Herod with, with the reality that the king of the Jews was actually Herod's title. You know that? So, so how awkward this must have been when these wise men from the east come in and they're asking him, where's the child who has been born to be king of the Jews. That's his title. So you got this maniacal, paranoid dude, and they're essentially saying like, hey, where's the new person that's going to be overthrowing you? Where, where's he going to be? Where's, do you know where he's going to be born? No. You know, like he's automatically not that excited about this news. And if we're honest, neither would we be. I mean, we don't have to be a crazy lunatic, maniacally paranoid to wrestle with this reality of like, none, none of us want to be overthrown. And the reality that we find the longer I go in this Christian walk is that we're always faced with this decision. Who is the king of my life? Is it me? Or is there, or is there one who is king? The king of kings, the king of the Jews that is the true king over my life. And if I'm honest, I'm not all that excited sometimes about Jesus being the king of my life. Why? Because it means that I don't get to do what I want to do all the time. It means that sometimes I have ideas that I think are better than his, but I've got to submit to him. Like, I've got plans, and I want to go left, and he says go right, and I'm like, seriously? I think it's a horrible decision, but I guess I'll do it, right? And it's this reality that we are always struggling with the exact same thing that Herod struggled with, which is, am I in charge? Or is there another one? And the reality that we all know to be true is this. There can only be one king. There can only be one. So you don't get to be king of your life and then also put Jesus up there too. Like you could sit. You could, I'll just, I'll just one cheek it. You know, we'll be fine on this throne together. You know, you just scoot over a little bit. I just, well, not as thin as I used to be. You know what I mean? Like you're, you, there's only one king in our life. And the longer I go, the more I realize that truly 
is the debate over our lives. Am I going to make him king or am I going to take it for myself? So it keeps on going in verse 4. He says, when he called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asks them, this is Herod, he's like, hey, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And immediately, verse 5, the, the answer is right there. They said, well, in, in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they know the answer automatically. Let's process this. All of the religious leaders immediately know exactly where the Messiah will be born. It's not even a question. They're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. This is Bethlehem. We all, we all know the answer. You know, it's like, like in Sunday school class, you're like, oh, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Yeah, okay, yeah. They all know the answer. They know exactly where this is going to happen. And so I start wondering about this. I'm like, okay, how far, you know, they're in Jerusalem. The wise men come. Hey, where's it where's supposed to be born? And they're like, oh, in Bethlehem. So I started wondering, like, how far is Jerusalem from Bethlehem? So I Googled it, Google Maps, because that's what we do when we don't know how to get places, even if it's over on the other side of the world. I Googled it, and I, and I found out that it is about six miles away. Six miles. Now, this is what blew my mind. What blows my mind is that you got these guys from the east that have traveled 900 miles. Huh. And you've got these, these leaders who know exactly where this, this, this Messiah is going to be born. And um, there is nothing, there is nothing in this text that tells us that any of them, any of the chief priests or teachers of the law, decided to go to. Six stinking miles. Like, none of them? Not even a curious one. It's like, I might tag along with you boys. Mind if I hop on a camel? Right, you know what I mean? Like, like none of them would take a six-mile walk to Bethlehem with, with the Magi. And, and the reason why it blows my mind is because one of my greatest fears in life and in ministry, and just as a Christian is that I would become a professional Christian. Like, like I would have good theology, and I would know the right answers. I would know my word. And, uh, you know, I'd be able to point people to him, to Jesus, and yet settle. Settle for knowing a lot of things about Jesus and never choosing to live a life of, of adventure and running after him myself. Like, and what I would say to you, and I say this out of love as your pastor, is this, that it is a very dangerous thing, very dangerous, to know the word of God and yet do nothing about it yourself. I mean, I could read a few scriptures for you that would probably scare you a little bit more than I am right now, but it's a very dangerous thing to know the word of God and yet do nothing about it, and yet not apply it to your life, and yet not choose to walk in it. May we never be a people who, who become so familiar with the things of God and yet remain unmoved by it. Like it's a very dangerous thing to walk into the presence of the king and, and yet walk away flippantly a, and choosing not to apply it to our own life. Amen? I'll move on. Don't worry. 
verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> That's how I read it. That's how I read it every time. I can't help it. We're going to take over the world. Right? I mean, it's like, it's like, come on, dude. I mean, you know when he was saying he was doing this. You know it. They all do it, right? It's, as you read it, you're like, come on. You know that this guy is not about seeking after the glory of God. And I would like to worship him, right? He's after his own glory. We know in his life, he killed his kids, he killed his wife, he killed his mother-in-law, he killed his mother-in-law. I mean, <laughs> hey! And, I mean, he, he, he was not looking after God's glory. He was trying to hold on to his own glory, right? How do we know this? We know this because he pretends to worship, but he intends to murder. Because later on in this very same chapter, when they don't come back and tell him, hey, we saw, the, we saw Jesus, and it was so cool, and we gave him weird gifts, and, and then we, we, you know, they never came back because they were told to go home a different way. He actually sends an edict out to kill every Jewish boy under the age of two years old. Because he actually didn't want to worship. He wanted to murder and remove anything that would come against him. He goes on in verse 9. Uh, it says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And this, you know, oh, it's just studying this week. Like, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about this star. Like, uh, you know, maybe in your nativity scene, you actually have one kind of like huh, over the manger. It's sitting there. Um, and people wonder, like, was it? Some people think it was an actual star. Like, oh, it was a real one. Like, it was, they look back in astronomy and like, yeah, I think that this one was shining brighter at that time. Or they say there was a convergence of planets that like kind of aligned and it was brighter in the sky. And so they were following that. And there's a whole lot of ideas about what this, what this whole thing look like this actual star. But he, here's what I was, here's what I was, as I was praying and studying going through this. What if we stripped away all of this weird folklore, the stuff that we've kind of like, tradition has taught us about this, this story, and we just read it, like just Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, for what it says. I think if we did that, we would find something, something that was like simply even more amazing that they were led by the glory of God. That they, that they were led, like, whether it was like, oh, these gases that were hovering, was this, was this a coalescing of, 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 of planets? Was this a real star? Was this, a, was this an angel? Was this a celestial being? Here's the reality. They were led by the glory of God. And there's a precedent for this, right? We see this in the Israelites going through the desert. They were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There was this glory of God that led them, that moved, that they followed, that hovered and stopped in places and then continued in other places. They were led by this glory of God. And we get all hung up. We're like, well, what does it mean? What did it look like? And what do we think it was? Was it planets? Was it, a, was it an angel? What did, tell me more about this star. But here's the real question. 
Why is it that pagan sorcerers 900 miles away saw it and, and religious elite that knew the word of God that were six miles away didn't? And maybe, maybe the answer is simply this. If you're not seeking the glory of God, you won't see it. Because we see that which we seek. They were looking for it. They obviously weren't looking for it. They weren't even willing to take a six-mile walk to seek after it. So they don't see it. And really, I've said this before, it's, it's why people in the same worship service, like even like, let's just take today. People in the same worship service can have incredibly different experiences. You know that? Like, like the person next to you maybe during worship today, they were crying. I was crying on the front row. I'm like, I'm a man. You need to stop, Justin. You know, I'm like, I'm crying during worship. And, and some of you are looking and saying, is that our leader for real? <laughs> or you got someone next to you that they're just like, all in. I mean, hands raised, looking like a lunatic, right? I mean, they're just going after it. And you're kind of like, oh man, I'm just a little, this is a little much. Okay, is this normal? Is this just because it's Christmas Eve, Eve, Eve? Or is this, nor is this everything? Is this, is, this what, is this how people act, react to, in worship? This is, this is a little much. Because the reality is, is that we all have different experiences as we, as we worship. Do you realize that that while you may, last week, let's just say, while you may have been sitting there thinking, I think the, think the lights are a little too dim in here today. That nine people gave their heart to Jesus for the first time. And I do mean that to step on your toe a little bit because what you seek after is what you see. And if you're seeking not after God, you may miss him. So people in the same worship service, even here, 2,000 years later, some can see and be seeking, and others can miss it and stay home, never living the life of adventure that God may have called them to. I'm all good. Everything's all fine. Why? Because they're not looking for him. And so you miss him. Okay, I'll keep moving. Number three, worship results in great joy. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, if you have the New King James Version, I actually like that better in this verse because it actually says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, which is so much better than they were overjoyed. Why? Because it means like they were crazy, like they were coming unglued, right? It, it's a better translation. Why? Because it actually, this, the, this like overjoyed or ex rejoiced with exceedingly great joy is actually made up of four words in the Greek, which essentially means they got so excited about being so excited about being so excited that they got excited. You know what I'm talking Have you ever been there where you're just like, man, like, I am worshiping God. I am so excited about being excited. I'm getting myself all excited about being excited, right? I mean, like, this is exactly what's happening to these guys as they see the star rise and they realize we're almost there. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be amazing. I'm so excited about being excited. Oh, my gosh, I'm excited. Why? Because worshiping should be a joy-filled experience. Do you know that? 
Like, I would go so far to say, it's like, if you're not enjoying worship, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, if you think that worship is all about, like, oh, I lost my tail, you know, I'm just, I'm a worm, you know, and God hates me, he's going to smoke me, you know, whatever that means, and I don't know. Like, you're doing it wrong. Why? Because when we worship, we're actually reflecting. When it says to rejoice, it means to rejoy, to take the joy, to take the light that is being shined on us and shine it back and to rejoice that. Listen, worship should be a joyful experience. It shouldn't be something where you're thinking, well, man, I'm just going to be a a smudge in the carpet soon, and that would be a good thing because that's what God wants to do to me. No, he actually wants you to rejoice in his presence. He wants you to to actually shine back that joy and that light that he has shown in your life. Why? Because worship is always recognizing that I am in the presence of someone greater than me. I mean, he is greater. He is is gooder than you. (laughs) He's greater than you. And he deserves your joy-filled praise and worship. Worship should be a joy-filled experience. And then in verse 11, he continues. I'm going to wreck your, your little nativity set even more. It says, I'm coming to the house. Notice they're in a house now. They're not in a manger. They're not in a feeding trough. This is probably, they say Jesus was about a year old when this happened. Um, I know I just ruined your nativity set, but it says when they came to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down, catch this, and, and worshiped him. The word they bowed down can also be translated they fell down. (laughs) I mean, these these wealthy, wise men come into the presence of a toddler and fell down and worshiped him. And think about how humiliating that is. You're looking at a one-year-old kid and you fall down and worship him. That would be absolutely humiliating unless you knew that 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 you were in the presence of the King of Kings. Then all of a sudden it's like, that makes complete sense. Absolutely. And so when, when we watch people, maybe next to you or in front of you or behind you, bow down or clap or raise their hands or whatever that looks like in worship, they're reacting the same way that these wise men did in the presence of the King of Kings. These men bowed down and worshiped him. And it's this reality that a physical expression in worship is a natural response to the supernatural presence of God. Let me say that again. A a physical manifestation in worship is a natural response to the supernatural presence of God. We see it all throughout scripture. So when somebody, look look at, these guys just couldn't help themselves but to display in the natural what was happening in the supernatural. When they walked into the presence of God, all of a sudden they had to bow, they had to fall down, they had to worship. They just got a case of I can't help myself. It's what happens when when we come into the presence of God. That, that when there's, and there's an alignment that happens. So some of you, like, you know who you are. Like, you're kind of in this place. You're like, you've been coming here for like, I don't know, a couple weeks, month, two months, six months, I don't know. And like, uh, you know, you, there's a lot of people around you that are kind of like, woohoo, jumping around, like, yee You know, when they're, they're calisthenics in the morning. And, uh, and, uh, and you're kind of like this. 
I got this. It's like a weird little appendage kind of hanging off the side. You know? You're just like, this is, this is me worshiping. It's good. It's just fine. And it's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying. Uh, and then there's some of you just like kind of get the two out. You know, you start to move a little bit. You got hips now, right? You're in worship and you got, and you put the down and anyone notice? Yeah. My wife looked at me a little weird, right? You know what I mean? Like, and then there's some of you that have your hands raised. Here's what I will say to you is this. When you choose to, to walk in the natural, to bring into alignment, that's what's hap- what is happening in the supernatural. There's something, there's something that happens in your life. And so what I would say is you're kind of like this. I just want to encourage you. Do something you've never done before. Because I, I know, I know God may be working on you. He's like, I don't know. I just don't, I'm not really into this whole song and dance thing. This is kind of weird. And so um, I, I'm, not, I'm not that. I just want to encourage you to push you as, as a physical manifestation in worship is a natural response to the supernatural presence of God. We see it all throughout Scripture. So, so, when, so when you feel like, I don't know, I feel like the other hand might be coming out soon, I'm just telling you, it's a natural response to the supernatural presence of God. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. You're not weird. Well, you, you're, you may be weird, but, but that's not weird. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll keep moving. I know that's, I know that's awkward. Um, so here's the strange thing. The strange thing is that these wise men have so much less information than you do. Do you realize that? They're looking at a one-year-old kid who hasn't done anything. Maybe he stopped sucking his thumb. He's just learning to walk. They don't know anything about the cross or about the resurrection. They don't know anything about the forgiveness of sins. And my question to you is this. How much more do you and I have to bow down in joyful worship to our Savior? These guys have got nothing. He's just known as the King of Kings and there's a celestial being. How much more do we worship the King? Number four, uh, worship involves giving to God. Verse 11, it says this, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, Giving is a natural response to worship. You're like, "Ah, you're going there today, huh? Really? I, I would go so far as to say this. If your worship does not lead you to give to God, then something is faulty in your worship. Why? Because you look throughout Scripture, you cannot separate worship and giving. You really can't. You see it time and time again. If you show me your checking account statement, I'll tell you what's important to you and what you worship. (laughs) If you look at mine, you'll know what's important to me, right? We automatically can see what's important to us and what we spend our money on. Why? Because Matthew 6, 21, this is what Jesus says. He says, "For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you say your heart is here, your treasure will be there as well. Have you ever wondered why these strange gifts, like gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, for a one-year-old is very strange? So I was looking it up, and I was, I was going through it. Like, these are costly gifts, but they're very prophetic as well. There, there's something very special about these three gifts. The first one is gold. It, it, it represents and is prophetic of Jesus' um, royalty. It's a, it's a gift fit for a king. The second one is given is frankincense, uh, which represents Jesus' Jesus's divinity. It was essentially incense was used in worship by priests. So this was kind of like prophetic of Jesus' divinity, also his, his royalty. And then there's myrrh, which is really strange because myrrh was used for a lot of things, 
in the, in the Old Testament, but one of the things that it was known for was embalming dead bodies. Um, I mean, who gives, who gives embalming spices to a one-year-old kid? Hey, buddy, just thought you need some myrrh. It'll come in handy one day. Hold on to it, right? What? It's really weird, right? I mean, it's an odd thing to give to anybody, let alone a one-year-old kid uh, on their, their birthday. And so I started studying and going through how myrrh and Jesus intersect throughout the Gospels. So the first time is this. We see that Jesus was offered myrrh um, as a toddler. And then we see it again in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 15, verse 23. Jesus was hanging on the cross. And it says, they offered him wine mixed with what? Myrrh. But he did not take it. And then, as we know, he was crucified. So we see Jesus was offered myrrh at his birth. We see Jesus was offered myrrh at his death. And then again in John chapter 19, verse 39, Joseph of Arimathea is preparing Jesus' body for burial. And we see in verse 39, it says he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So myrrh followed Jesus in life and in death. No matter what, we find from the beginning that Jesus was born to die. And it seems weird as we talk about this baby in a manger, but the reality is, is that he came not to be a cute little baby with a halo and a peace sign, sitting weirdly, it, he came on a rescue mission. He came as royalty, as the king of kings. He came as divinity, as man, God. And he also came realizing that his purpose would be revealed through his death. His death, his burial, and his resurrection to restore a relationship with God. So he was king and he was divine and his purpose would come through his death and he was on a rescue mission to save you and you and you and you and you. Even while you were still yet sinners, the Bible says that Christ died for you. But I don't deserve it exactly. That's kind of the point. He died for you. Why don't you stand with me? This last verse, in, um, if you st keep your Bibles open to, to verse 12, um, it's a very interesting verse. The Lord was like revealing a couple things to me as I was reading it this week. And um, it says this in verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, I want you to notice something. Just in this, just keep your eyes on that, on that scripture. I want you to notice something here. This is so significant. Before these wise men entered the presence of God and worshipped him, they had to rely and go to other people to understand what the Bible said. But, but after they entered the presence of God and worshipped him, God spoke directly to them. Isn't that amazing? Like, here, and here's the thing. If you're not a worshipper of Jesus, you're continually going to be opening up this weird book and saying, can you help me? What, 
Can you help me understand that? I don't. Or you're going to come week after week to church and say, Pastor, I'm going to need you to, to preach something about what I'm going through because I, don't, I can't do what you do. I, I don't see this. And you pull stuff out that I, I just, I don't see it. But after you come into the presence of God and submit and worship, to, worship him, he starts to speak to you directly. That's what happens when you come to the, to the realization and making, of making him not just the king of kings, but your king over your life, your Lord, your savior. All of a sudden, you're gonna find that you're opening up the word and it's like, whoa, it's like for me. God just starts exploding his word to you and speaking to you through it. You have dreams and visions just like these, just like these wise guys did. Like they just start, all of a sudden, God starts speaking to them in ways that they'd never, they were always had to go to the, let's gather all these chief priests and, and you tell me what the Bible says. Can you, can you explain that to me? And now all of a sudden, God speaks to them directly. Speaks to them directly. And not only that, I love how it says this. Verse 12 ends and it says, they returned to their country another way, a different route. Worship changes you. They went back home a different way. They went back home differently. Like you should be different after being in God's presence. So if you're worshiping God and, and you're not changing, something's off. Like when we come into the presence of God, when, when, when God is, is, is when, we, when we submit and we're worshiping him, it will change you from the inside out. My prayer is that you would never come into this place and leave the same way you came. The beauty of what God does is that he accepts us and re, he receives us the way we are, but he never lets us leave the way we were. When we come into the presence of God and we choose to submit our wills and say, God, I'm, I'm choosing to worship you and to submit myself to make you my king, he changes us. The word of God says that we're not conformed by the pattern of this world, but that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. So all of a sudden now you open up your Bible and he's, he's speaking to you about things that you have no business even thinking about. You wouldn't even have thought about this a week ago. We come in one way and we leave another. Like I said just a few minutes ago, last week, nine people came in one way and left differently because they encountered the living God and worshiped him. So what do you give someone who has everything? What do you give God? Your worship. Your worship. That's what he calls you to give. Is it that easy? Well, I didn't say it was easy. I actually said it was sacrificial. I actually said it, it required something of you. But, but it's not just about singing songs and about raising your hands and, and doing all this or that or whatever. No, it's certainly not about that, but it's certainly not less than that. Certainly not less than that, is it? No, it's that and some. Much more. So I just want to encourage you, just like these nine people that, that just decided to, to take that step of faith, if, if God is pulling on you today and you're like, that, you're like these kings that are coming in saying, I, these wise guys, they're like, I, I don't know what this is all about, but I, I just know that I'm in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't know how I'm supposed to react other than worship. 
and you choose today to say, you know what, I'm going to worship God for maybe the first time in my life to make him, to take myself off of the throne and put him up there where he belongs and deserves to be. If that's where you're at today, just between you and him on this Christmas Eve, 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 just say, Jesus, that's where I am. Just raise your hand just between you and him right now. Say, God, that's where... I, that's where I'm at. If this is really true, if this talking head guy up here that's saying anything of truth, that I can really have a relationship with the creator of the universe and I want it today. If that's true, I want it today. Just between you and him today. I just want to lead you in a prayer today. Nothing magical about this. This isn't, a, this isn't an incantation or anything. This is just a simple prayer of just making Jesus our Lord. So if you want to repeat this after me, if your heart is with me today, I just want to encourage you to pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I don't deserve what you did. I believe that you sent your one and only son to come, to die, and to be raised again. And I receive him today as my Lord and my Savior. Change me from the inside out. So Lord, I pray for each and every single person that just made that simple declaration today. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of new beginnings, that old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. I pray that even as they leave here today, they wouldn't leave here the way they, they, they came in. They would walk out a different way. Lord, as, as they are changed from the inside out and being transformed by the renewing of their mind, Lord, I pray that you would give them uh, dreams and visions that you would speak to them, Lord. I pray you would reveal yourself to them in new ways that they've never even expected or even hoped. I pray you'd love them in ways that they never even dreamed of. I pray that they would, they would find favor over their life in ways that they never even thought was possible. God, I pray you would have your way in their life, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit from the tip of their toes to the top of their head, Lord, that they would come in as paupers and leave as kings. Lord, we thank you that no child of yours goes hungry. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you are a good father. You are a good, 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 good father to us, Jesus, and we trust you with all we have. Thank you, Jesus. As we enter into this last song of worship today, if you've got a prayer need in any area of your life, maybe you came in today and you've got some things that, that you just, you know, you, you just know are bigger than what you can handle. You just know that you just need some brothers and sisters to come alongside and pray God and join with you to believe God for greater things. Why don't you just come right up here along the front as we, as we enter into worship. We have a prayer team that will come alongside and just pray with you. But Lord, I just pray that you would draw each person to yourself that you're calling to them today. Lord, I pray you'd meet us where we're at, not let us leave the same way we came. Lord, have your way in us today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.